0: thank you so much for taking the time to tune into rich politics tonight we've got a fantastic interview lined up for you but before we go to the interview don't forget to hit that subscribe button i'd really appreciate it well my guest tonight is dominique samuels she is a conservative commentator and a student of politics and she joins me right now here on rich politics check it out Thank you so much for agreeing to come on Rich Politics. I really appreciate it. You know, it's a new show. So say to all of our viewers, hit that subscribe button. Really appreciate it. And you've been quite vocal for many, many years. I remember you very heavily involved in the Brexit stuff. You know, you were quite vocal on social media. you got a huge following. You've spoken on a whole number of different programmes. And it seems as if you're... It's not because you're black, because you know what they're like. If you say, well, she's black, she gets a voice. But this has become a problem in today's society, the whole race issue, hasn't it?
1: Yeah. Um, A lot of people would say that I only have a following because I'm a conservative black person. That's like, you know, a novel thing. So that's automatically why... I get the sort of attention I do. And a lot of people have said it's also because I'm light-skinned as well, which is like just really random and say that I can't have an opinion and blah, blah, blah. People are really interested in me because I say X, Y, and Z. When in reality, although yes, it is kind of um, novel to see a black conservative that's vocal because there's loads of black conservatives, but I'm Mm -hmm. like the most vocal online and I'm not afraid to say what I think. It is novel. So people are going to be interested in it. But for the most part, I think... Most people are interested in what I have to say, not because of my skin colour, but simply because they agree with my opinions, basically.
0: Well, it, the reality is it shouldn't be about the colour of anybody's skin. We, we know that. And I have just yeah. found that, you know, there's, there's a lot within, you know, uh, both on the right and the left, people will try and divide us. They try to divide us, you know, racially and they make comments and I, I never find them helpful. We're, we're all human beings. You know, mm. well no matter the color of our skin, but have you found that this, the whole issue of race has really been ramped up in our in our politics today?
1: Almost oh, definitely, and I think it's something that has been brewing for quite a while. Because before I kind of developed the political opinions that I do have now, um, I was sort of kind of involved in this hyper racialized kind of rhetoric and discourse. I, I myself subscribed to it until. I realized that you know actually these people aren't very nice and they're actually mm. kind of a reflection of the people that they hate so much which are the you know the white supremacists the white racists and i realized you can't be an anti-racist whilst being racist towards another race of people yourself so that's kind of how i distance mm. myself from it but we're at a point in society now where race is the focal point of any conversation mm. Mm -hmm. Every single conversation has to be racial. It has to be political along racial lines. And you can't say anything without it actually being there. It hangs over you. And that's why a lot of politicians and commentators have seen this and realized that it's a real opportunity to get attention, to galvanize votes Mm -hmm. and to actually win elections. And that's why we're here at the moment right now. And I think just lastly, this is something that's been in America way longer than it has really in the UK. Mm. I think in the UK, we're way more defined by more so class lines than I think racial lines. But in America, the, the racial lines, although they've kind of gone away, a lot in the media with politicians, they're very much entrenched and um, uh, perpetuated. And we've seen it imported into this country with Black Lives Matter and everything. And yeah. that, that's why we are where we are basically. Yeah,
0: I, I, no, I think you're right. You know, American politics, which is obviously hot topic at the moment, with, uh, with uh, Trump not uh, conceding, even though Biden has got more votes or whatever. I, I want to talk about that. Anyway, it's another story. But, <laughs> but you know, the, the racial disparity and segregation within America and how it's played into politics is, is quite big. You know, yeah. here here in the UK, of course, especially here in Wales, you know, the class situation was a big thing. You know, the Labour Party were for the socialists, you know, ideals and all that, you know, caring for the poor, giving them benefits and welfare. And the Conservatives were all about capitalism, you know, and business, you know. And so we've had that, so it's kind of... But things are changing here in the UK. Things are changing mm-hmm. here in Wales, and this whole issue of race is becoming a big part of our everyday conversation—not just politically, but in society. Mm-hmm. And I, I've even found myself having to check what I'm going to say, just in case I'm going to get into trouble for it, knowing that I am going—I'm going, I'm going to have an ounce of racism in my body. But I'm told I might have because it's unconscious, you know. And so it's very difficult then to have a kind of level playing field of debate or discussion when you're having to censor your own thoughts and your speech before you engage with someone politically. And I, I find that quite frustrating because it doesn't allow the freedom of speech to be so free because we're having to censor it. And I, do you find that's happening as well?
1: Almost definitely. And I think what you said is what it's actually designed to do. It's designed to censor people and resign people to a certain area of speech that uh, a loud and vocal minority of people render acceptable. And I'd just like to say that I find people that police themselves and the way they speak with regards to race, I'm quite suspicious of those people, Mm. because if you Feel that you have to police everything that you say and be really, really careful. Well, what are you actually thinking? What are your actual intentions? I'm not convinced by people that act as though they're, you know, complete saints when it comes to race and completely not racist because they say all the right things. I'm more interested in people that are honest about the way they speak and say it to my face. I, I want to know. I want to know what you think and how you how you feel, not how you think other people uh, should view you and how other people want you to speak and I think we're at a real dangerous point in society where we can't say what we think and all of that does I believe is foster two sides of the extreme you've got extremists on the left that want to censor everything that anyone says and then you've got people on the right who are kind of pushing back against that in a kind of reactionary manner that are saying hey we should be able to say blah 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 blah." and it creates two extremes and I think the reason for that is because of this censorship um, on freedom of speech that has cropped up in this country.
0: Uh, it's, it's almost like we talk about, uh, you know, cancelling culture, you know, this kind of drop in people because they, they, they've got a particular narrative we don't agree with. But we're getting to a point where we're cancelling language, where people are afraid yeah. to say certain things. And I've noticed on social media, because social media can be a pit of toxic stuff as well. It's, let's be honest, we know that. I mean, you know, you've know, you got, we've had our trolls and all that, you know, us on social media, get all that. But that aside, there is a place, isn't there, for, for debate and conversation and for education, to educate one another. And I was just thinking before I came on to the, the show tonight about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, of course, back in March here in Wales, we had a huge march outside the Senate in Cardiff, even though it wasn't allowed, apparently, because of lockdown. Um, <laughs> we don't talk about that right now. Anyway, we're not on lockdown, by the way, in Wales. You are. Sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm not even going to get started on that. It just makes no, no. no. Sense. We, we've, just <laughs>
0: been of, we've just been let out of prison, so we're all right for the minute. Anyway, so we're OK. Um, <laughs> we, we had two weeks in jail, but we're gone now. Um, but, yeah, going back to the Black Lives Matter thing... Um, Of course, you know, uh, to to bring an awareness of racism is important. Education is important. Our histories are important. Um, I was, uh, I don't know if you, not many of our viewers might know this, but I was a big fan of Bob Marley. Uh, Eli Selassie was the Messiah. You know, I was brought up around Bob Marley, you know, the more weed you smoke, the closer you got to God and all that. Crazy religion. But (laughs) I believed believed in it. And I used to go, wagwan, re rastafari. I used to talk like that, you know. And I'm a Welshman. I'm a Welshman from bloody Wales. But... But that, that is the truth. And, you know, so I've, I, you know, the, the whole idea of the Black Lives Matter movement for me, I could understand at the start of it, what they were trying to achieve. But once I began to understand a bit more what was behind the scenes of what this movement and organisation was about, it was very different from what the mainstream media were painting them as. So you would have football matches all taking the knee and you'd have Black Lives Matter being advertised in the stadiums. And more recently now, they've now registered as a political party. I mean, what do you think about that?
1: Well, the reason that they've done it, I think, is because um, they had over a million pounds in donations. And despite the fact that they were set up, I think, in 2014, they had no actual legal structure in place uh, for them to be able to accept such a, a large amount of um, donations. So uh, that's why I think they've positioned themselves as a political party. But aside from that, it doesn't really come as any surprise because mm. the aims and the people behind Black Lives Matter are inherently political. Uh, they're far left, they're Marxist. They, like, they are very, very vocal and out about that. And the problem with Black Lives Matter, you know, when people try and separate the movement and the organization, is that for the most part, they are one in the same. But, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people that I disagree with on Black Lives Matter. And a lot of people genuinely agree with me on the kinds of economic solutions I think would benefit black people more. But they're, they're sucked into this whole, you know, modern activist brainwashing that that we've seen this year that means that you know you need to loot and shout and scream on the street in order for you to actually be able to get tangible change. And that's the kind of environment that Black Lives Matter has created. So I'm not surprised that they've registered as a political party. I don't think they're gonna make much of an impact on electoral politics though again i feel like it's more to seem like they're doing something so mm-hmm. they can you know have that those donations rather than actual actually advocating for policy change
0: yeah we we'll stay on the whole issue of risk because i think it's quite you know, important, uh, given the news this week that the, um, the chairman for the Football Association, the Premiership Football Club, uh, F- Premiership Football, I should say, Greg Clark resigned because of comments that he made. And we talked about policing language and cancelling language and what we're afraid to say and not to say in case it offends people and being aware of that. And he made a comment. He made a few comments, but I want to zero in on one particular comment he made. Mm-hmm. He used the phrase uh, coloured people instead of people of colour. Now, before I ask you to, to, to talk about that, I first of all want to say, for me, uh, th- this is my naivety. Forgive my simple Welshness. I'm just a Welshman, working class, who lives in the valleys, and I think everybody is coloured. I'm coloured. I'm coloured. This is not white. This is just how I see it. Now, that might be a wrong understanding for uh, people who are not of that colour, and I, given the fact I know the history... You know, there are a lot of people who have had to fight for their freedoms and all that. I get all that. But for the sake of, a, you know, saying colored people instead of people of color, I have to be honest with you. And I'll tell you as it is, I didn't even know that was a racist comment. I didn't mm-hmm. know it was. Now, educate me. Yes, but I didn't know. No, he didn't make it in a vicious way or a nasty way. Not what I understand. But, you know, if I was to say, I would never use this phrase because I always check myself. You know, But should I be You know, a coloured person? I wouldn't say that. I'd say Dominique, because yeah. that's who you are. You're Dominique. It doesn't matter what colour you are. But it is difficult. And I, I just wonder what you think about his resignation today, because he was under huge pressure because footballers had this huge thing about kicking racism out. They've had celebrities on, you know, really pushing. And they should, because we, racism has, let me make this clear, racism has no place in our society whatsoever, in any form, shape, whatever, it has no place in society without Mm -hmm. a shadow of a doubt. But should he have resigned because he said people of colour or should have said people of colour instead of coloured people? I mean, I I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: I think it's a bit of a difficult one because the term coloured person, I think the issue with that term is the connotations that it had. It has, like you said, uh, with segregation in America, you know, separating the colours from white people and things like that. So that's the context that it has. However, I think that, you know, if you consider his age, I think he's like 63. Mm. He probably grew up around that kind of language. So it's not that he said it in a a malicious or nasty way. I'm assuming that he didn't. It's that it's literally what came to his head first. I think Amber Rudd did the same thing on the radio. Don't think she resigned over that. Mm. She said coloured as well. And then um, apologised for it. So, don't think it was malicious. I don't necessarily feel as though he had to resign for it. I think he should have just explained, he's old. It was, you know, slip of the tongue, whatever. But what I, I want to focus on, really, is the hypocrisy around that, though. Because mm. people of colour, the ten people of colour, is literally just a posh way um, of saying coloured person, it's like a, a, a French way of saying coloured person, a person de couleur, that's literally it, and that's kind of where we're at now, where we have like shifted what were, certain words mean, moved a few words around to make them sound more politically correct, and today I can say person of colour, or you can say person colour, because I'm person of colour, and be politically correct, but you can't say "colored person, and it's kind of, just this, the, uh, it's backwards, I think it's backwards, and I get actually do get offended when people call me person of colour, I think it's patronising, I'm not the mm-hmm. person of colour, I'm black, mixed race, or whatever you want to call it, and most of all, I'm an individual, I don't really need to be resigned to person of colour, I just think it's patronising, mm-hmm. and it's the same people that you see pushing this stuff though, it's liberal lefties that think they're being really good, they think they're being really virtuous, when in reality they're just patronising people, so yeah, that's my
0: opinion. Well, uh, I, I wonder, though, you know, with, with the some of the walk-left liberals, what, what what are they trying to achieve? Because I, I, I've i got to the point now where I'm getting fed up of the, the divisions that they're creating. They're creating divisions sometimes. They're not even there. And they're looking yeah. for these areas <laughs> of division. Like, what are you doing? Just Can you just, like, in the words of Bob Marley, one love, you know, just love that. We all love each other. Hug each other. We love each other. Let's get on with life. But they seem intent on, like, you know, dividing us. And it really worries me. I mean, I see it here in Wales. I see it. We, we have an issue in Wales with Welsh nationalists like they, mm-hmm. You know, they see the English as their oppressors. So it's kind of not quite the same as a colour issue, but it is an issue. It's an issue of, you know, they see England as the oppressors and Wales is, uh, you know, where we're being hard done by. And I don't agree with it, by the way, but, mm-hmm. you know, but they, And they're liberal left, they walk and they they have this idea that we've got to divide and we've got to cause problems all the time. And I just wonder, though, the the long term aim of, of this of these kind of people, they're thinking, I mean, I don't quite understand what it is they're trying to achieve, apart from causing anger in people from shutting down free speech, from uh, not allowing proper debate to take place anymore. Now, we know when we, when we face or we see anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or racism or whatever it might be, we call it out. Absolutely. But it's as if they're trying to dig for stuff that isn't there. It's just like, yeah. why are you doing that? What, what, what is their game?
1: Well, the game really is they're in pursuit of this utopia. And we all know that utopia does not exist. And in their utopia, race doesn't exist. Well, race actually is a bit of a difficult one because in their utopia, no one sees colour at all in the sense that, you know, we're all seen as the same because that's kind of what left-wing people perpetuate is this collectivism. And in order for us all to be, you know, the same, gender can't exist, any real acknowledgement of race can't exist, but the way in which they pursue that, and this, this sounds strange, but the way in which they pursue that is to highlight, highlight those differences and to make people angry about it. Because when people are angry, it makes them easier to control and it makes them easier to go to extremes. And when people, particularly left-wing people, go to those extremes, it means that they can be more successful in shutting down the freedom of speech of others. Because in order for their left wing utopia to actually work, it, you mm. kind of have to control people. Because, you know, we as individuals, we are you know inherently selfish and, mm. <laughs> and that's just the fact. We are inherently selfish, we're inherently self-interested. We don't like to be controlled. We like mm. to say what we like we like to be honest about things. And in order for this kind of left wing utopia to work, people have to be constrained and they have to be controlled. It literally can't work like Mm. any other way.
0: Yeah. Well, the the question I've got, one of the last questions I've got, which I I wrote down earlier, and I really had to think about this because it's something that I, I believe is happening, you know, right now in, in society. And it's just this, are we losing our cultural identity on the altar of political correctness?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's, it's a question that I've often asked myself because we've seen, let's go back to the statues being taken down, right? We know uh, history is tainted with bad stories. Absolutely. Some tra- terrible, things are ridiculous. We know that. But not just the statues, but our cultural history, you know, United Kingdom, for example. Are mm-hmm. we seeing the cancelling of a culture? Is there a cultural terrorism, I call it? if you like, of losing our identity on the altar of political correctness. So because things offend people and our history is offensive, let's be honest, it really is. You know, we did some bad things. Our country, you know, I mean, I wasn't around then. Neither were you, Dominique. You know, we, we yeah. learned in school. That we, you know, we didn't know. Like, I had nothing to do with us, boss, but we know it was there. I just wonder if, you know, we're the walk left, the liberal side of things, they're like, well, you know, we need to get rid of all that. We need to cancel that out pretend it never happened, and create a new world order and say, like, this is how we're going to live from no. I mean, are we losing our cultural identity on the altar of political correctness?
1: I think so, and I think this is a quite a sensitive topic for a lot of people. However, you know, the sinister way in which it's being done, wanting to remove things and erase things that are remotely offensive to a vocal minority of people, is just effectively another form of control because when people aren't really aware of history and the nuances behind history it makes the narrative way way easier to control this kind of race-based narrative that pits people against each other Mm. this kind Mm. of gender-based narrative that pits people against each other sexuality it just goes on and on and on and when you try and erase bits of history it makes it it makes it harder for people actually to be able to debate it and that's why a lot of these, the time these left wing people are going after children, they're going after schools, they're trying to indoctrinate people, they're trying to remove statues, they're trying to rename things, they're trying to erase history. And no matter how offensive history is, that you know there are there are part, offensive bits of history for every single culture yeah. in every single part of the world. You don't erase bits of that history you don't like. I don't walk down the street and feel like killing myself because I see a statue that I don't like. The average person actually does not care, but it's a vocal minority of people. And a lot of the, ta- a lot of the time, these people aren't even, aren't even ethnic minorities. These are like woke, woke liberal white people that are trying to pursue this pure, pure, pure agenda on the behalf of ethnic minorities without realizing that this stuff doesn't even really matter. What, what we want is economic solutions for everybody yeah. right now. We can't keep focusing on the names of things and erasing things. All it's doing is trying to stop debate and make it harder for people to actually be able to debate things and give their own point of view. Again, it's just another form of control.
0: Absolutely. Coming to a close in a moment, because our time is almost up. I know it's gone really quick, but it always yeah. does. <laughs> I know, I know. Which is great, and you've been fantastic. I, I just... I've been following you on social media for a while. I've seen a lot of stuff you put out there. You know, you are very conservative. You know, I say very conservative. I, I'm not on about the fact that you agree with everything Boris Johnson's doing. I, mean, I don't mean that conservative, <laughs> but uh, politically, I mean. Um, I mean, if there was some advice you could give the government right now, if you became the new special advisor,
1: <laughs>
0: <are> you replaced <laughs> Dominic Cummings, whoever it is, you became the special advisor, the prime minister, What would Dominique Samuels say to Boris Johnson tonight in the Cabinet?
1: I'd say, Boris, you need to have a nap (laughs) because you've obviously banged your head. (laughs) You need to have an nap. You need to wake up and you need to realise what it is you're doing. You're locking the country down, destroying the economy, pissing everyone off in the process, including a lot of Conservatives, and making yourself look like an absolute buffoon. You need to open up the country Retain common sense things like hand washing, hygiene, social distancing where possible. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to learn to live with this virus. The people that are most affected by this virus are older than the average age of the population, for God's sake. And we need to stop punishing the young and let them go out and live their lives. Please wake up, Boris, because you are literally destroying this country.
0: Well, Boris, if you are, Prime Minister, I should say, sorry, your proper title, if you are watching, Dominique has, Dominic has spoken so you need to listen very carefully but well, Dominique thank you so much for your time and coming on Rich Politics hope to get you on again um, what's next for Dominique then what are your plans I know you're studying you now what, what's what's the future hold for you what's your, what's your ambitions and your dreams and your visions for the future
1: well I don't know I kind of want to do everything um, I'm interested in carrying on with my political commentating I kind of want to get into journalism I would like to do broadcast journalism for a bit um, I think that I want to be in a position where I can kind of call things out and criticise and scrutinise certain politicians because I think Westminster is an absolute swamp. But maybe one day um, I'd look into getting elected because it's something that I have wanted to do. But since I've been involved in like politics and everything, I've kind of been put off because I feel like it's just absolutely corrupt. But yeah, maybe one day I hope to be elected.
0: Well, let's hope so because, listen, these political institutions need outsiders like us to get in there, to change them for good. So, Dominique, thank you ever so much. And to all of our viewers watching uh, on Rich Politics, don't forget to check Dominique out. She's all across social media. You can find her, just search for her name. I've got plenty (laughs) of stuff on there. I'm sure she'd appreciate it. Dominique, thank you ever so much. I look forward to speaking to you again on Rich Politics.
1: All right, bye.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Dominic Samuels. Please check her out on social media. And, of course, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and, of course, YouTube. Subscribe and share the video with as many people as you can. We'd appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode on Rich Politics. Well, good evening, and welcome to a Sunday night special here with Rich Politics. And my guest tonight is uh, familiar to many of you because he's a champion of Brexit. It is former MEP, uh, former MEP Ben Abib, and the chairman of Unlocked. And what a day it has been! We were all waiting on the news whether we would be leaving the European Union without the deal or under WTO terms, as we call it, or a clean break Brexit. Unfortunately. Boris Johnson has got no spine and he's kicked the can further down the road and calling for further talks to go the extra mile. So, Ben Abib, thanks for coming on, Rich Paul. It's yeah. great to have you on the show again.
2: Great to be here.
0: Well, today yeah. should have been a day of celebration, Ben. I should have been popping that cork and drinking and celebrating and talking about all the benefits of Brexit as a sovereign nation again. So, but unfortunately, that's not to be. Uh, what do you make of the news today with Boris Johnson kicking the can further down the road? Well, I'm very
2: saddened by it. You know, I thought on Friday, I was getting all ready on Friday to eat humble pie because I, I thought the rhetoric had reached a pitch from which neither party could, you know, withdraw and that we would get a no deal Brexit, which as far as I'm concerned is the best deal. And, um, and then now here we are another 48 hours later with the prime minister again. And I, I'm afraid I do see it as our Prime Minister buckling. I don't see it as the EU buckling because they never made any real threats. And I appreciate that both parties at Sunday evening would be the end of it. But it's our Prime Minister calling von der Leyen, again, getting an extension. And you can only you can only assume that we're heading into something that Brexiteers like myself will not be happy with. You know, you can only assume that and... Yeah, I mean, sorry, forgive me, I'm yeah. kind of lost for words yeah. because I'm so deflated by well, what's happened.
0: Well, I know? mean, the, the EU didn't seem to show uh, any compromise or, or, or concessions, actually, around the number of key issues, fishing being the big one, you know, our coastal communities and our waters. Yeah. And surely when we voted and many Brexiteers that I've spoken to over the years, and by the way, for the viewers, it's been over four years we've been waiting for this. Um, you know, we expected to take back full control, not partial control. And surely Boris knows that. He knows why he got a majority. Do you think that he's made a big mistake here and and it's going to affect his premiership by not standing up to the EU that are clearly trying to bully him?
2: Well, I mean, I think think Boris had all the moral high ground until the 23rd of January 2020. And the reason I say that Mm. is that clearly the withdrawal agreement was negotiated when he had one arm tied behind his back, which was as a result of the EU acting in bad faith, conspiring with the forces of remain in this country, conspiring with the Irish government to weaponize the Northern Irish border, forcing us into a really bad withdrawal agreement. And obviously my hackles were up during the general election, looking at that agreement, which he had championed as a fantastic oven ready deal, knowing that it was garbage, Um, But he won his thumping majority. Fair enough. That's politics. He won it on a deception. Fair enough. But at that point, he should have ditched that agreement. And at that point, really, all Brexiteers' antenna should have been waving around like Billio. You know, the warning signs were going off like red lights that this man isn't going to deliver a proper Brexit. Mm. And we've hoped and prayed all the way through since then that he will you know, eventually pull a rabbit out of the hat. And every time, a bit like the grand old Duke of York, marching us to the top of the hill in our expectations, he's let us down and we've come deflated back down the hill. And every time he's done that, he's blown his credibility just a bit more with the EU. And to be fair to the EU though, I've got no inclination to be fair to them. Mm. What they're now demanding is nothing more than what he signed up to. You know, if you read the political declaration, it does say a level playing field according to EU laws, such as they are at the end of the transition period. It does say fixed fishing quotas. It does give the European Court of Justice a special role. It even commits us to military interoperability and considering signing up to PESCO. Mm -hmm. So all these things, PESCO by the way is the equivalent of NATO, the European Union equivalent of NATO. So, you know, all these things that he claims are not in the political declaration, are there as clear as daylight. Um, and the other disappointing thing, sorry to you know, continue on a disappointing note, not but sure. the, other disappointing, the, the other disappointing note, Rich, is that last week, Michael Gove confirmed in the Commons that there will be a border down the IRC, that there will be EU state aid law applying in Northern Ireland. Thankfully, he's protected the rest of Great Britain but that's mm-hmm. not the point. You know, the promise was, and remember, this is the Conservative and Unionist Party. Yeah, the promise so. was the entire United Kingdom would leave the EU Customs Union whole, that there wouldn't be this border down the Irish Sea. that he promised businesses in Northern Ireland that if anyone asked you to produce any form of declarations or anything, you know, tell me and I'll put them in a the bin. But, um, you know, we know that, We've signed into this, this wretched, wretched Northern Irish protocol, and it affects us in the United Kingdom as a whole because the only way now that Boris Johnson can mask that border, the only way he can hide it because he hasn't had the courage to ditch it, the only way he can hide it is by lining us up closely with the EU so that no one really notices its existence. And that's not what we voted for.
0: I wonder, Ben, I know that you've been very vocal about the withdrawal agreement, political declaration for many years, and you've said it's the worst thing ever. I remember you saying it. And, uh, you know, of course, it still ties us into a number of issues that Boris is trying to fudge and trying to get away with it, as you've said. I wonder what do you think the deadlock is? Do you think it is around the Northern Ireland Protocol? Or do you think it's to do with our fishing, uh, our laws, you know, with the change in regulations? What do you think the deadlock is? What do you think the fight is right now for Boris with the EU?
2: Well, it's all a bit opaque, isn't it? Mm. Because they've done all of this behind closed doors without any form of democratic scrutiny taking place. We actually know the House of Commons, by the way, is not gonna scrutinize this because Labour cannot be seen to vote for no deal. Mm. And, and we know that there's enough of a majority therefore on the conservative side to see this deal through. So um, there's, the only democratic scrutiny that this deal could have received was from people like you and me. You know, it would have been people like you and me looking at the negotiations, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And so they very cleverly left this till the last minute and kept it all behind closed doors. But I, I, I mean, I suspect that the disagreements have been fourfold on fishing, on EU state aid law mm. and the other laws that um, comp- comprise the level playing field um, and the European Court of Justice and governance of the agreement in general obviously the prime minister doing the right thing back in September
0: Mm.
2: when he brought the IM bill forward to try to neuter that border in the IRC has convinced the EU that we're not in good faith and so I think their antenna now up that they've got to make sure they find a way to you know make sure they find a way to um, ensure the UK complies with its obligations. So I think they're probably, I can't know for certain, but I think they're probably negotiating around all these key issues still. And, um, and probably, Rich, we're slip sliding mm. away from a, what I would regard as an acceptable position to one where we are ceding control and we're ceding uh, our ability to really set an independent chart for the United Kingdom.
0: I'm just wondering then, Ben, where where does that leave those of us? And I've noticed today in particular, of course, in Sunday, across social media, which is the real world we know. But you get a general feel of the the opinions of people, that people feel as if Boris is acting in a way that's been a complete sellout. For those of us who did vote for Conservative or may have lent our vote, have been Brexiteers since 2016 and fought for a clean break Brexit all along. I certainly was one of them. How does, is Boris able at this stage in the negotiations, although he's kicked the can down the road again, can he pull this back?
2: Well, I I mean, I think the only way to pull it back is with a no deal, Hmm. Uh, unless I've totally misread the EU and they are about to capitulate. But I, I see no sign of that. You know, it's not so easy for the EU to capitulate. For for von der Leyen to capitulate requires her to really have had very close conversations with a number of members, heads of states, Mm. you know, before she can move off that negotiating mandate that they set back on the 25th of February this year. And they've been very firm in what they require. They've been very clear from the beginning. And, uh, you know, there may be some wriggle room for her around the edges of it. But I think that they're insisting on some form of level playing field, some form of um, fixed Fixed quotas, not annual shares determined by the UK at its sole discretion, but fish, fixed quotas for fish and some involvement of the European Court of Justice to, as they see it, make sure the UK does what it promises to do.
0: Ben, do you, do you think that a clean brick is now dead in the water, given today's news? I, I,
2: I think it's been dead in the water from the minute he signed that withdrawal agreement. Mm. But emotionally, I'm... I, I mean, I don't want to give up hope. I'm at 99% it's dead mm. and 1% hoping that it might trip into no deal. You know, that the, there's a bit of argy-bargy around the negotiating table. People get fed up, they throw their toys out of the pram and they go off in a half. Um, so I'm, ho- I, you know, I'm hoping, I'm still hoping.
0: <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> uh, how, how do you think this is going to affect the Conservative Party? I know we're a long way off from elections, but of course... You know, Boris has faced some rebellion within his own party on some of these issues. You know, some of his members wanted a deal of some kind. Some said they wanted a deal, but secretly they didn't. Let's be honest. And some have have been clear that they're happy to go for a clean break Brexit in the WTO terms. You know, where does this leave the Conservative Party? I'm not going to talk about Labour because there is no opposition at the moment because they're they're in a mess themselves, as you know. Where does this leave the Conservative Party?
2: Well, I think Boris's premiership is in the balance. I know people will probably raise their eyebrows when they hear me say that, but I think whatever he does from here on out is going to be judged either by Brexiteers like you and me as unacceptable or by the remain faction of his parliamentary party as unacceptable. Um, I I think he's between a rock and a hard place. He's promised everything to every side to get them Mm. to this point. And he's going to be called out, so I think his premiership is in trouble, whatever he does. And I did write an article the other day saying, actually, the politically expedient thing for the prime minister to now do is a clean break. And I'm not just saying that for my own, for my, you know, getting my own agenda, yeah. uh, uh, you know, accepted. The reason I say that is that a clean break Brexit now allows him at least to say to the electorate that he delivered on the promises he made, particularly to those. R- red wall voters that um, you know voted Conservative for the first time. And he's got four years, even though I don't think he's ready for no deal, by the way, I don't think they made adequate preparations. but he's got four years to sort that out. Mm. And um, if he doesn't make a clean break, it's gonna loom large over him and over the Conservative Party. Mm. And I think the challenge he will face is much greater and the challenge the Conservative Party will face will be much greater if they do a sellout.
0: Well we've heard here in Wales uh, from the First Minister down in Cardiff Bay, Mark Rakeford, about you know uh, the devastation that uh, a clean break Brexit would cause if we left with no deal and he's been quite an advocate for that. Of course there are Remain uh, party, the Welsh Labour Party here in Wales and of course many people were concerned about the, the preparedness of the country when it came to leaving with no deal. I wonder, what do you think about the fact that maybe Boris is, is extending these talks to give us more time to prepare for a no deal? That might still be a possibility, don't you think?
2: It might be. I think chances of that are even less of us getting a clean break. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to hope then, am I? Am I dreaming too much, Ben? I'm trying. I think that's a real dream. You know,
2: if this prime minister, if this prime minister was serious about no deal preparations, we would have known about them right at the beginning of this year. Um, we, are, you know, one of the things I've, I've launched, as you probably know, Rich, a sign called Brexit Watch, and yeah. we've produced a Brexit barometer. And one of the ten items on the Brexit barometer is no deal preparedness. You know, how well are we prepared for mm. no deal? And there's a lot he could and should have done. Mm. He should have had grant schemes ready for exporters. He should have been ready to levy tariffs on the EU. He should have been ready to support our exporters in case tariffs are levied on them. He should have put in place schemes to smooth the ability for those manufacturers who've got supply cycles tied up in the EU, Mm. you know, some kind of low cost loan scheme so that they could hold on to stock for longer without having their profitability impacted. He should have made it clear to the agricultural sector that some form of subsidies would continue post our exit. He should have made it clear to the universities that some form of subsidies would follow after our exit. He should have made it clear that the money that we were saving off the 18 billion a year was gonna go towards cutting VAT, cutting corporation tax, cutting a a tax on, on fuel. He should have made it clear that we were going to ditch these regulations and he should have stipulated what those regulations are so that businesses in this country would know that come the 1st of January, they would be operating in a much more business-friendly environment. Mm. He's done nothing of that. Mm. I've seen recently some mention of supporting our agricultural sector as yeah, well I, as some of our I was going to ask you about that
0: because you, you tweeted something, uh, an article in The Telegraph uh, a few days ago, I think it might have been yesterday, that uh, it, with a No deal, there would be billions of pounds available for farmers and factories. So there are benefits of a No deal, which we know about. Oh, but, but oh, for, some, for some reason, <laughs> Boris is committed to this idea that, well, certainly he has. And he's listening to the scaremongering stories, you know, of all the ideas of businesses going, investments not coming into the country, food prices going up, food standards, loss of jobs. It's all, all, it's all, all garbage. The crap. It is. It's all the crap we hear during yeah, it's the all referendum. Yeah. Uh, you know, and what Boris could have done, he could have made, he could have played a huge part in, in really bouncing back on the economy and businesses and investment by coming away with an ordeal bend, do do you think?
2: Uh, Absolutely and you know let's not underplay the benefit that business and people in this country would have got by cutting Mm -hmm. regulations. You know every time you foist a regulation on a business it has to incur a cost in order to comply with that regulation and so if we had gone for a dereg, what we call supply-side reform, so cut taxes, cut regulation, we would have been Singapore on Thames. You know we'll never be quite a Singapore because they're a much smaller country But, you know, we could have been Singapore on Thames, and that frightens the willies out of the EU, mm. and that's precisely what we should have aimed for. And with armed, with all those freedoms he would have got, he could have tackled the iniquities of the last 30 years, mm. you know, created as a result of the massive deindustrialization of the United Kingdom, for which there's been no post-industrial vision, you know, and He he should be pumping money into our universities, creating new R&D centers, getting ready for the new economy. He's talking about the green industrial revolution. But in my way, he's going about it the wrong way. You don't tell people, ditch your petrol, diesel cars in order to buy vastly expensive Teslas. You don't do it that way. What you do is invest money in renewable sources of energy to make sure that we have something that is genuinely a, a proper alternative to fossil fuel. And, you know, that's where his focus should be and generate jobs on the back of that. But, you know, he is doing a bit of that. But, you know, I I think, Rich, look, there are two kinds of people in the United Kingdom. Mm. There are those who believe in the United Kingdom being able to govern itself and that it is a a capable nation that can go forward independent of the supranational institution that is the EU. There's that lot of which you and I are part. Mm. And then there's what I call globalists, People who think that the only way that we can solve the world's problems is if more power is given to supranational institutions. And not just the EU, but the WHO, the UN, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, they want these, these institutions to govern us. They see them as, as valid technocratic mechanisms for global governance. Mm. And They're basically anti-democratic because in order for these institutions to govern us, they have to take power away from individual states and hand it over to them. And I'm afraid that the vast majority of our political class are globalists. And I think Boris Johnson is a globalist.
0: Yeah, I, I, I. Everything you've just said, I agree with. I was trying to find something I could disagree with there, so I could come back <laughs> at you, but I couldn't because I, I'm, I'm exactly the same as you, Ben. I just wonder then, what, what is the future for us Brexiteers? I mean, there's a lot of us out there now, isn't it? Right across the United Kingdom, who we'll probably tonight and the viewers watching this uh, this evening. Uh, We're watching it, you know. Wh- wh- what can we say to them? What hope do we have of you know, it ever being what we wanted it to be? And if it doesn't change, what should we do next? Not that you got the answer, Ben, but you know, just speak to the, the viewers tonight who are Brexiteers.
2: Well, I think the most important thing is that we mustn't give up the fight. And I think what you're doing, Rich, what Talk Radio is doing, what I hope GB News will be doing once they're launched, what, what, what Unlocked is doing, is giving a voice to those of us who believe in the United Kingdom, who believe that we can be an independent democratic nation, plying our own way in the world, not becoming little England or little Wales or little mm-hmm. Scotland, but a combined United Kingdom engaging with trade partners across the globe and doing what we've done so well over centuries, which is to be an independent trading nation, not part of some conglomerate. It's not in our nature. So. People like you and me need to continue to give voice to that. Mm. We need to continue to hold the government to account as best we can. And we need to call out the provisions of whatever agreement we're going to get if the provisions are bad, and bring pressure on politicians to correct it. And I hope, what I really hope, is that a new political force will emerge over the next year or two. Mm. And that political force will either force the Conservative Party to become the conservative and unionist party again or that political force will gain seats in parliament and challenge both the you know both the incumbents labor and conservatives and give this country a new independent direction
0: yeah, well, before we go, because our time is almost up and it always goes quick. I know I was going to say I've got to pop to the pub for a pint, but I can't because the pubs are not allowed to sell beer in Wales. That's another story altogether. Oh,
2: my goodness! No uh, beer
0: in Wales. No, no. You must beer be in getting Wales. homicidal. <laughs> I know it's dreadful. It's terrible. Thanks to the emperor on a cardiff. Bay. Um, just just quickly then I want to pick up on that. There is space for a political party of some kind now, isn't there? We've got plenty of time for that to happen before the next general election. Surely there must be a lot. We know that people like Lawrence Fox with Reclaim and many others like the SDPs and all these, there's lots of these groups that have formed. Is Nigel about to do something? Is he going to come back and start something? Do you think that's on the cards? It's always a possibility with a good old Nigel, you know, as you, you know what he's like. I think there is yeah. space for something, isn't there? There's, there's, there's a gap there. And obviously, uh, the public feel there is as well.
2: Yeah, I think the country desperately needs it. And Nigel could easily be the man. Um, it's difficult, I think, having stood down 317 candidates to get mm. back from that. And I know Richard, is, Richard and Nigel have renamed the party Reform Party. Yeah. And I really hope they succeed. I hope they go for it. Um, I hope they can garner support. It's not easy launching a political party with a view to gaining control of the agenda. Mm. You know, the Brexit party did so well because the nation was crying out for it. You know, remember Brexit is a single issue movement. There was a movement and a feeling Mm. in the nation that democracy was being abused and it had to be put right. And the Brexit party answered that calling. We're in a slightly more more, amorphous, slightly more nebulous political climate at the moment. And we haven't really got that calling, that movement out of which a champion can emerge. Mm. But it will come. You know, we've just Mm. had the mother of all recessions, though we haven't had, we haven't really felt the effects of it. Mm. And if Boris signs us into a deal which prevents us from being able to recover properly from the pandemic, because I think that close alignment with the EU will prohibit our ability to recover. It won't accelerate it. It will slow us down and prohibit it. And if that's the direction the prime minister takes his country, then I think that movement may just arise. And it may be Nigel, it may be Richard, it may be Lawrence, or it may be someone completely Mm -hmm. unknown that we haven't come across yet, who rises up behind that movement, grasps it, gets the nation's imagination, and can actually make a huge political difference in Westminster.
0: Well, we could say Ben for number 10, eh? That could be a possibility. couldn't <laughs> it? <laughs> they said you should not... know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you got my vote, Ben. Eh? That's for sure. And probably oh, many of the others you. watching the show as well. Well, Ben, listen, now time is up. Thank you, as ever, for coming back on the show. I know it's your second time on. I always appreciate talking to you. You're a wonderful man. And uh, I'm thankful for the friendship that we have. And I hope our viewers have enjoyed again this Sunday night special here on Rich Politics. As you all know, Boris needs to grow his spine. And unfortunately, what we all hoped for tonight didn't happen. But of course, we don't give up hope. We keep fighting for a better and brighter future for the United Kingdom. Catch you next week on Rich Politics.